June the 24th, 2012, uh, lecture discussion number 71, lecture discussion number 71 on the book of Romans. And, uh, well, last Sunday, if uh, you were all here, and I don't know how many of, uh, I know this is a time of year people come and go a lot. We began Romans chapter 5, though, last Sunday. Finally, the great therefore is what uh, it is sometimes referred to, mostly by me, but uh, um, I agree with that. It is the great therefore of Romans 5.1. Let me just sum it up a little bit. Having been justified by faith, in other words, Paul has proven his case. Now, you may not think so, but what would you be then? That's right, you would be wrong. Paul has proven the case that you are saved by faith alone and that you have peace with God through Jesus Christ alone. There is no other peace and there is no other salvation except by faith and belief through Jesus Christ. And he also says very clearly that we stand in grace. If you are saved, it is because you stand in grace and you rejoice in that grace, in the goodness of God, that he gave it to us, that God is always good. It's called omniperfection. He cannot be anything but good. There's no possibility that anything but good is God. That is a very difficult concept. You would think that would be easy, but it's not. And all of that is true even though we were enemies of God. And even though we were enemies, even though we were sinners, Christ dies for us. Which is an extraordinary concept when you consider it. He is dying for his enemies. We do not usually have that kind of compassion. Okay, we never have that compassion. That is why uh, David is called a man after God's own heart, because he weeped for Saul. He weeped for Absalom, Absalom, two of his enemies that sought to kill him. He loved them both. And that is God's goodness right there. That is how God responds. That is how he responds to Satan, as you know. That is how he responds to anyone. If you were here for the Judas lectures, uh, there's 30 or 40 of them. To let you know how complex that subject is, uh, Christ weeps for Judas. He weeps for those who hate him. That is what God does. That is what he wants us to do. And even though we were enemies, Christ died for us. And that's pretty much the uh, that introduction I just gave you sums up the great first therefore of Romans chapter 5. And for those who count, and there are lots of people who count, and it's good to count, by the way. I don't want to make you think that I am not um, respecting them. There's three therefores in Romans 5. And that draws the attention of the people who like to count those kinds of things. Uh, and you will notice as you go through uh, the book of Romans, the, the word therefore is everywhere in the book of Romans, just as it is in the book of Hebrews and in First and Second Corinthians. Uh, it's everywhere, by the way, uh, all throughout the epistles of Paul. He likes the word therefore. Therefore is abound in Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Hebrews. Paul has a habit of using therefores. And by just as an aside here, just for those of you who are interested in all these kinds of theological oddities, and not really oddity, but the debates that go on in the seminaries and the uh, and the places of uh, higher learning, I'm not so sure that applies anymore. But uh, at least they think so. The fact that uh, therefore is so prominent in the book of Romans is, uh, I believe, one of the ultimate proofs that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. 
because it's also prominent in the book of the Hebrews. Along with the, he does two things consistently. He likes to put by faith. That's one of his phrases. By faith, the just. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, just lost my train of thought. Now I have to look it up. This happens when you get old. I just wanted to make sure. The just shall live by faith. You see that by faith phrase all the time. Isn't that odd? Happens to me occasionally. I must not have gotten anything to eat today. Lori makes me a smoothie. And I didn't get my smoothie today. And I had to set up all the equipment on the stage by myself today because Anna didn't bring Seth back in time. So I'm going to be whiny halfway through the sermon. You know, I had Cheez-Its. No, I didn't. I didn't even have Cheez-Its. I had Cheetos. That's my meal up to date. Paul had a habit of using those phrases, therefore and by faith. Those phrases, very important to him and very consistent. And again, if you don't think that he wrote the book of Hebrews, you have him writing 13 epistles instead of 14. But clearly the writer of Romans and the writers of Hebrews was the same man. Different styles, maybe, if you want to do that. One is high formal. The book of Hebrews is high formal. He makes sure that his style is accepted by his audience. Uh, and Romans is less formal, and though, though still un- unbelievably written, uh, it's scripture nonetheless. But whether Paul is arguing forcefully or not forcefully, he still uses therefore, but more so when it's forceful, when his argument is forceful, so that therefores come flying out when he's really trying to make a point. The Holy Spirit is using him to, to uh, destroy, if you will, the argument of those who have a different view. And that is the book of Romans. He is destroying a view in the book of Romans. What view is he destroying? He's destroying the view that you are somehow saved or you are somehow held in salvation by some kind of effort of your own, human-based salvation. He draws the, the contrast. There is, you either believe God or you save yourself. That's the two choices, and he destroys the choice of save yourself. That is the book of Romans. And that is why Romans 5.1 is called the great therefore. Romans is the case for salvation by grace alone. Both Corinthians is the doctrine of resurrection and the triunity of God. And Hebrews is the Godhood of Jesus Christ. And obviously Paul, when writing to save Jews, would write differently than to save Gentiles. Anyway, suffice to say, many scholars, okay, not very many, some scholars, a few scholars, they've gone around counting the therefores in the book of Romans, in the book of Corinthians, the book of Hebrews, the book of Ephesians. They've counted all his therefores, and they've made a little category. Because they know every time Paul said therefore, he did something dramatic. It's not a behold, but it's still nonetheless amazing. And these scholars separated them all out and placed them into categories, into groups, in an attempt to see if they form a pattern. Do you think all the therefores form a pattern? Oh yeah, they're very happy about it. These people uh, that do this kind of stuff are extraordinary students of the Bible. They found 27, therefore, is in the book of uh, Romans. And they're in three groups of nine. Uh, there's 15, therefore, in Hebrews and uh, 38 in the Corinthians. Uh, 21 in 1 Corinthians, 17 in 2 Corinthians. 
27 to the numerologist people is what? Yes, that's right, three cubed, right? Us math teachers, we pay attention to three cubed because that is, again, the triunity of God being portrayed for you. It's of particular interest to the numerologist, as you would expect. Same for 15. That's uh, grace and divine perfection. Five times three. And I recognize that a lot of people get carried away with this kind of stuff, and I don't want to um, do either. I don't want to disparage it, and I also don't want to elevate it. But I do want you to know that, that God is very mathematical, and these kinds of things are not coincidental or accidental. And 21 is divine perfection and spiritual perfection. Three times seven, and 17 is the seventh prime number. Now you're getting into the solution to the 153 fish. And the fact that that is a Passover pattern, which is uh, unfortunately uh, hidden from many, many people. And uh, if you understand uh, three cubed, you will understand 666. You'll understand the mystery of the 666 if you understand uh, uh, the number 27. Uh, That's another long story. I have done that many, many times, as you all know, but just for those who follow along by the Internet. Obviously, I can go quite a ways with the therefores. And again, lifetimes have been devoted to the study of such things. I don't want to um, just pass over it without you knowing about it, so that's why I'm bringing it up today. And perhaps someday uh, we'll list the 27 therefores of Romans, but not today. Uh, we'll take on the three therefores of Romans 5, though we will do that, but also not today. You can do it today. Feel free to proceed by yourself during the sermon. Find all three see what he proved in Romans 5, that would be good. I won't be offended. I think that I have two significant, valuable things to give uh, to people on lecture day. One of them is a place to sleep, and the other is a place for you to study on your own. And that's perfectly fine with me. It's my tradition. It's what I offer. Okay, where were we? Where did we last leave off? And that's right, we went to Exodus 20, the law of the altar. I'm not only going to have to turn the monitor on, I'm going to have to move the monitor where it goes. That's two things for me to remember. The law of the altar, um, I didn't really want to erase my four signs. We have to get back to the four signs next week. But today we're going to look primarily at Exodus 20 and the law of the altar and the tremendous typology that is there, the terrific portrait of Christ that it is. So as soon as you get to Romans 5.1, you're at Romans 5.1, you see the therefore, the proof that there is no possibility that you have earned your salvation or that you keep your salvation by yourself, by some tradition, some work that you have. That is proven, that is declared to be untrue, Romans 5.1. So you ask yourself, I'm sure, how come so many people believe otherwise? The overwhelming group believes otherwise when it is clearly obvious that it isn't true, Romans 5.1. But as soon as you see Romans 5.1, then you have to go where? That's right, you have to go to Exodus 20. And as soon as you go to Exodus 20, where do you have to go? That's right, you have to go to Acts 2. And here is where I have to bring up Jennifer from Arizona. Hi, Jennifer. And yes, Jennifer, I did get your question on mid-Acts dispensationalism. She is bludgeoning me to death with it. She is kind of the class pet, uh, and she's utilizing that great status to beat me to death with mid-acts dispensationalism, but she is right. I hate to say that. That will just encourage her. 
she is right. We have to talk about it in at Acts 2 because that is where the controversy can, becomes. And so we will, in the next few uh, Sundays, uh, mention it. And so, Jennifer, yes, you have won. I hope you feel good. Not really. That's a fake. I hope you feel good. She will understand. So, as soon as you get to Romans 5, you go to Exodus 20, the law of the altar, which sends us to Acts 2 because of the four signs and the symbols that are marriage and betrothal. Acts 2, Exodus 20 are identical, and you need to know that. God uses uh, these symbols, marriage and betrothal, as a means of teaching about Israel. He uses the symbol that is marriage to teach about Israel, and he uses the symbol of the betrothal to teach about the church. Or, if you will, the wife that is Israel and the bride that is the church, to use the language of the symbols. So to sum up for those who missed last Sunday's introduction... Um, into Romans 5, it's again, Romans 5, 1, plus Exodus 20, or all of Romans 5, sorry, plus Exodus 20, plus Acts 2. And now, to answer again the oft-raised question that comes each time, I immediately go from Romans 5 to Exodus 20. Everybody asks me, why? Why do you do that? Why, what is it about Romans 5, 1 and the law of the altar of Exodus 20? And I hope that it is obvious. Let's just kind of look at Romans 5 real quickly again so you can see why it is obvious. But sometimes it's not. And if it is not obvious, what must I do? That's right, I have to beat you. And that's what we're going to do. I want it to be obvious. Therefore, having been justified by faith. And when he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, that's the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul. He is saying there is no other salvation except by faith. If you're going to, and I know many of you go to churches other than this lecture, uh, that is perfectly fine also. That's one of the reasons we're at this time. If you're going to a church where your pastor stands up and says, you have to do the following things in order to keep your salvation, he is in violation of Romans 5.1. He says you have to do the following things that are some kind of human effort, human-centered, man-divined or man-designed system in order to be saved in the first place. He is in violation and is opposed to uh, Romans 5.1, all of Romans. He doesn't believe God. That's what's happening. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace. I asked last week, where is the peace treaty? Where do you suppose the peace treaty is? You're an enemy of God, Romans 5.10, when you're unsaved and a sinner, and here you have peace. That means there's got to be a peace agreement. Where's the peace agreement? There, that's right. You're absolutely right. Exodus 20. The law of the altar is the peace treaty. And that becomes very clear, I hope, for you. Having been justified by faith in this grace, or I'm sorry, this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. For if we were enemies, all of that sends us to the law of the altar. Exodus 20. 22 through 26. So let's go back and try to find it. And I'll, um, if you, you should, as I say to you as often as I can, you should be able to do this without me. 
How do I know you should be able to do it without me? Because I can do it without you. That's number one piece of evidence. So it's obviously it can be done. And number two, I know who the real teacher of the Bible is. It's not me. It's God himself. The Holy Spirit is the teacher. So let's read it again. Reread it. Then the Lord said to Moses, and you should, you should write, take your pencil, write, see Romans 5, right above this. Then the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, you have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver or gods of gold, you shall not make for yourself. Why does he say that? Every time I do the law of the altar, I imagine what's going on. What are they doing? Well, he's probably telling them. They're busy making them. In all likelihood, they're over there making gods. They just saw him, right? He came. He came with an angelic host of tremendous amount of power and noise and all of those signs. And there ran away and they said, Moses, you go back and deal with it. We're going to hide over here. And while they're doing it, they're all doing what? They're human beings. Which means they're what? Idiots. That's right. Just like us. Don't laugh at them. You're in the, you're the guy. Find yourself in the, in the uh, Bible. There you are. You shall not make anything to be with me. God's, in other words, don't put anything alongside of me. Gods of silver or gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves. Because <coughs> they're going to do it, aren't they? They're going to make all kinds of things. And we do it today. An altar of earth you shall make for me. And you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings. Because this is a peace treaty. Your sheep and your oxen, in every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. By the way, just for an aside, something for you to do in your spell, spell, the spare time. Bethlehem or Bethel. Okay? Either one. Shiloh. Zion. Do a word search sometime for fun and figure out how those are related. Is it a good thing to be a Zionist? Let me ask you this. Is it a good thing to be a Shilohist? Is it a good thing to be a Bethelist? Or Bethlehemist? What do you think this means? What do you think they mean? You will be somewhat surprised. Something to do. If you don't do it, what will I do? I'll bring it up next week. So you can be lazy. That is why I get the big money. And have the huge extravagant lifestyle that I have. <laughs> Thank you for laughing, Karina. She's seen my house. Okay. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you, what, by the way, just for fun, what does Shiloh mean? Come on, you all took Civil War history, didn't you? What does Shiloh mean? Not one of you? Be aggressive, Lindsay. Help the class out. Give them the answer. 
Nobody wants to go. Okay, well then I won't tell you what it means either. No! You have to do some work here. Though you can't be saved by it. Okay. And that was just as... <sighs> and if you make me an altar of stone and you shall not... you. Let me go back here. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build on it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Okay, there it is again. Let's just review it. Uh, Put it on the board, I guess. Let's try that. Maybe that'll help. Do not... Profane the altar. What's the obvious question? How do you profane the altar? We'll get that in a minute. But do not, do not have any steps. No steps. Do not go up there because you'll be naked. What's nakedness in this context? Context. It's shame. It's sinfulness. Don't use tools. No tools. Don't shape the rocks. Don't profane the altar. Don't go up the altar on steps that your nakedness, your naked shame, your sinfulness will be exposed. Your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, that's what goes up there. In other words, the altar, the law of the altar, comes immediately after the giving of the law, the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. And that is not a coincidence. I have the law of God, if you will, the law of God, and then he gives me this law of the altar. That's what we just read. That's what the law of the altar is, okay? The profaning of it. Don't profane it. No steps, no tools. Don't, uh, don't go up on it. Don't, don't do these things. Back to back is the law of the altar and the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. That's, again, not a coincidence in case you might think otherwise. If you think otherwise, well, what's the word that we're going to use for you today? That's correct. Ignorant. It is not a coincidence that the law of God is followed by the law of the altar. It is required that the law of God is followed by the law of the altar. Required. That's why he did it. The law of the altar is a portrayal. It's a portrait of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. It is the saving blood. It is grace. It is mercy. It is freely given by faith, belief in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what the law of the altar is. Do not profane that. Do not expose your shame or your sinfulness. Now, I have another word here. I know I'm being very strong. Do not expose your stupidity. I add the stupid part. That's my editorializing. In any event, back to the obvious question that should smack you aside the head. How is it that one specifically profanes the doctrine of the salvation of Christ? I have the law of the altar, which is the salvation of Christ, following the law of God. 
not a coincidence. It has to. Salvation has to follow the law. How is it that one profanes the doctrine of the salvation of Christ specifically? How exactly? How exactly do you expose your stupidity if you're in this position of doing so? I've replaced again. Sinfulness and shamefulness with stupid. That's, again, my little subtle attempt at giving away the answer. Do you have the answer? If you don't, we'll make another list. Because you should know how you exactly profane the law of the altar, which is the salvation of Christ. Number A, no gods of silver or gold. Don't do it. B, by the way, why would you even think that's a good idea? What just happened to you if you're Israel? You have God himself. You've seen the ultimate reality. You've got the four signs. There he is with all the angelic host. Tremendous noise. Fantastic fear. You all ran away. You sent Moses to go back. And now you're making uh, uh, silver and gold figurines. What, for sale? What are you doing? Why does he even have to say it? But he does. No tools. And see, no steps. No silver, no tools, no steps. Those are the no's. What are the yeses? What are the opposites of that? I got those. I have opposites. Here are the yeses. That is profanity. Here is good. Earth. Make it out of earth. Make it out of stone. And blood. Goes on. Those are the opposites. God says, don't use tools on the stone. Don't use tools on the rock. God says, I don't want the altar. I don't want my salvation to be adorned by your silver and gold crud. Don't put it up there. It's crud. I have another word for it. Don't use tools. Don't make steps. Don't put your silver and gold up here. It's plain and simple is what he wants. He wants a plain and simple altar. No human work. No human manufacturing. God rejects human work. God rejects human manufacturing in the context of what? Salvation. No human work. No tools. No, do not try to design my law of the altar. Don't design my altar. What is his altar again? What is it? It is salvation. Don't design my salvation. Don't put a tool to my salvation. Don't do anything to it. Certainly don't put gold on it. My salvation is made out of earth, rocks, and blood. I don't want any steps, I don't want any of your stupid gold or your stupid silver, and I don't want any of your stupid tools anywhere near my salvation. Does that make it clear as best I can do it? Okay. How many, church have got, how many churches have got salvation like that? Not very many. 
In this city, I'd say less than 10. How many got this? All the rest. Hundreds. How did, how? how? That seems pretty clear to me. Most churches in this country, most churches in this world are doing these three things. Everywhere. Now, are you doing it individually? God says, I want it to be plain and simple. No human work, no human manufacturing. He rejects human labor with regard to salvation. You see that in Cain and Abel. Cain brought what? He brought his crops. He grew the crops. He harvested the crops. He planted the crops. He had all his crops. He brought all his crops, and did God take them? No. What was missing? Blood. Got to have blood. You're going to come to me with something that has salvation in it in any way. It must have blood. I don't want your stuff. I want blood. What did Abel bring? Blood. One is a bloodless sacrifice. The other is a sacrifice of blood. Blood offerings to bloodless offerings to the true God are rejected. Do not approach God with your silly tools, telling him how you have saved yourself or kept yourself saved. He is not interested in that view. He will reject it. He calls it what? What's he call it? He says so in Exodus 20. He calls it profanity. This is the profane side. This is the holy side. Understanding those six symbols and how they are opposites, very important. It's profanity. Do not confront God with your stream of profanity. Make no steps. Don't think that you can climb up steps. Don't think that you can rise up to God on steps of your own making. That is also profanity. You're trying to climb up to God. Does, can you climb up to God? No. Why don't you know that? Why would you make steps? You can't climb up to him. Why would you eat, make steps? What's wrong with you? He descends to us. We don't lift ourselves up to him. Remember, I'm always talking about you're in quicksand trying to pull yourself out by your ears. It's insanity. He has to come down and give you his hand to pull you out of the sewage that we're in. He saves us. We do not save ourselves. This is a philosophy, if you will, or a doctrine or a teaching of your ability to save yourself. That's what this is. That is why it fits with Romans 5.1. And what God requires is our understanding of that basic truth. That we approach his altar, his plan of salvation, with humility and recognition of our condition. That we know our place. What is our place? We stink. I used to teach uh, a PE, as most of you know, in the public and the private school system. And at the end of PE, I got them all together. Mostly, uh, it wasn't co-ed in that day, so that just tells you how old I am. But I got them all together and I said, okay, we have something that we all share. What is it? We stink. All of us 
Me too. Understanding that you stink is very important to you as you go through life, especially as you go through high school, because there is no greater time in your life as a young man that you will stink more than high school. And it is very important that you know that. And it is very important that other people know that, even though you don't think they know it. I would go around with two signs all the time when these kids would talk to me. One sign said, yes, really, I believe you. No, not really. And the other sign said, you stink, and I'm your friend. And only your friends will tell you you stink. That's the truth. Friends will tell you you stink. But what, what, what is God trying to get you to do? He's trying to get you to understand the condition that you're in. What condition are you in? A hopeless one. And there's nothing you can do about it. You can't, uh, you can't make something and earn something and do something to get, your out, get yourself out of it. Again, God descends to us. The very effort of men to build steps, if you understand what building steps is, in order to climb up to God, how ridiculous is that? If you try to do that, what are you exposing? What does he say you're exposing? If you try to build steps to climb up on his altar, you are exposing something. What are you exposing? That's right. Your stupidness. Is that a new word? Yes. Your stupidity. Stupidity? Stupefaction? If, if you think, he says here clearly, don't, nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, or, I'll put or, or I'll put because, because if you do it, your nakedness will be exposed. What does nakedness mean? Sinfulness? Shame? Lack of understanding? You're so what that you think you can go up on an altar and save yourself. You're what? Yeah. You have put the D in dumb. You really do think you can save yourself. You cannot. You are only saved by what? Romans 5.1. Grace. Faith. Justified. Salvation is by faith. Therefore... Salvation is by faith. You cannot save yourself. Exodus 20, he lays it out for you. This is a profanity. Every time you say, I believe I have to keep my own salvation by self, I have the power over that. I have to do something to earn it, and I have to do something to keep it. Every time you say that, God says in Exodus 20, that is a profanity. You might as well just spew it all over the place. What he says. Now, how popular am I going to be on some websites? Not very popular. Do I care? Kind of. I, I want to be liked. Yes, I do. I'm very sensitive. I want those people to say, we like him. Mm-hmm. It, it hurts my feelings when they don't like me. What did you say? <laughs> I can't say that over the internet. <laughs> yeah. Kathy uh, uh, can't be quoted because of Australia. 
Let's continue. The material, God will not take this profanity. So look inside yourself and see, do I have any of this in me? Do I have steps in me? What percentage of people do I meet in most churches that think they can do something to get to the top of that altar? Very high, 99%. How many people think they're required to do it? 99%. Steps are everywhere. How many people think that God's plan of salvation ain't quite good enough? We're going to have to fix it. So we're going to make, we're going to get a hold of those stones that He's got and we're going to kind of shape them a little bit with our tools. There's a whole bunch of them. How many people have other gods that they manufacture themselves? Profanity. His system is this. This is what He wants. He wants his altar to be earth. What's earth? This is what he wants. Make your salvation out of this. Go home, make yourself an altar. How many of you would make a really nice altar out of gold and you'd make it yourself with your tools and you'd have a whole bunch of steps to it? How many of you would go out and just get a bunch of dirt and some stones? Which altar would you make if I had an altar contest? Okay, everybody, bring an altar. How many of these would I get? Yeah, I get none of those. Very few. Some people would have read the instructions. Most people don't read the instructions. Here's the instructions. This is the peace treaty. This is how you're no longer an enemy of God. The material that God accepts for his altar is earth. What is earth? It's dirt. What is dirt? It's dust. That's a very important word in the Bible, dust. He wants dust and he wants rocks. And the Hebrew word for dust or for earth, E-R-A-T-Z, it has a, has a connotation of crumbling, crumbling away. And that, by the way, gets your death to dust, to crumbling away you will return. So death, he wants an element of death on his altar. Okay, of the death or of the dust of earth, man is made. So the altar is going to have death and it's going to have humanity. Who is the altar? This is a type of, this is a portrayal of, this is a symbol of who? The law of the altar is who? It's Jesus Christ, that's right. And the altar will be have humanity in it. The salvation altar... By the way, what is Christ's name? As you know, it is Yeshua. What does that mean? It means salvation. The salvation altar, the altar, the man that is the altar. The altar will be of earth. It will be human. It will have humanity in it. God's salvation is has an element of humanity. God's solution to the law that's just in front of it. And what does the law do? The law condemns to death. His solution to the law will be this union of unhewn rock that is not touched by man. Something that has nothing to do with man in the sense that man did not make it. It is uncreatable. It is uh, never created. It is before. It is the creator. It is before the created. So I will have an unhewn rock and the dust of the earth. God and man joined. Hypostatic union is what that is. That is Christ, the God-man, right? Got that? That is part of the symbol. Now we're going to blend Exodus 20, 22 through 26 with Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8. I don't have time to read it. Okay, I do have time to read it. I just looked. I'm doing good. Well, some may not say good. 
Some would say, you're going to go long as usual. If I'm going long as usual, then it's not really long. It's just usual. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ. In other words, understand this truth. Who being in the form of God. If you're in the form of God, who are you? By the way, what is the form of God? Omniperfection. Infinity. Omniscience. Omnipresence. Omnipotence. That's the form of God. So if you are in the form of God... Who are you? You are God. You can't be in the form of God without being God. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Of course not. He is God. But made himself of no reputation. Okay? So the altar, Jesus Christ, made himself of no reputation. What does that mean? Humility. Taking the form of a Hebrew slave. Oh, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because after the law of God comes the law of the altar, and then comes the law of what? You can do this. What comes after the law of the altar? The law of the Hebrew slave. And coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Okay? So, now blend that with Exodus 20. Go back to Exodus 20 and blend it together. God himself, Jesus Christ, would take the form of a Hebrew slave. That's Exodus 21. Coming in the likeness of man, formed of the dust of the earth, and being found in appearance as a man, he descended to the altar, humbled himself to death. So now I hope it's self-evident why there is no steps for man to climb. Because God descends. We do not join Christ on himself. He's the altar. We do not meet Christ halfway. We have no capacity to get halfway. There's no steps. You can't get there. You're what? Your condition is what? Doomed. You can't save yourself. You have no way to reach God. So what do you do? We have to wait in the dust, in death. We must know our condition. We must know our place. We must know our true state. That's critically important. If you don't know who you are, what you are, and where you are, you will be doctrinally unsound. But, having said that, man is nothing if not arrogant. Or proud. Mankind doesn't want to wait in the dust. Mankind doesn't like to de- what I just described. If I had a, uh, I had a PE teacher named Bill Wiltrout who has gone on now. Bill Wiltrout, when you walked into the, the he's one of the men that taught me how to be a really, uh, what's the word I want? Interesting PE teacher. He started out by asking everybody if we knew we were uh, dumb. And you can fill in the words, sophomores. He did it for 40 years. And some of us didn't like to be insulted. And he felt bad for us. And he did not stop insulting us. And if you didn't like being called that, he would call you by your first name. 
and then he would call you that. The point of it was, is he was doctrinally sound. But no one likes to know what they are. We think that we have potential and capability, and that we want to climb up. We want to make steps. Mankind isn't satisfied with God's plan of salvation. Mankind doesn't want to be told that he stinks, that he's dying, that he's hopeless, that he's naked, that he's blind, that he's wretched, that he's poor. Mankind doesn't want to hear that. Mankind wants to hear he's great and he's fantastic and that he can do things on his own and that he doesn't need God and he can on and on and on. Mankind craves to add himself to the salvation system. He wants to make it better. If I say that I can make it better, what have I just said about God? I have said God is incompetent. I have said that God has made mistakes, that he's wrong, and that he lies. That's what I've said. Ultimately, I've said God is evil. When you go here, gold, silver, tools, and steps, you are declaring God to be evil. Mankind and churches discard the instruction of Exodus 20, 22 through 26 every single day, and they spew vulgarity, and they build steps by the thousands, and there are steps everywhere all over the world, all through history. That's what man does. He is a step maker. And Christ said in Matthew 19, as you know, I said this is a few weeks ago, he is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, All cannot accept this saying. Remember that verse? He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. That is the saying of the law of the altar. It's hard to accept. This saying is hard to accept. Christ is saying that, by the way, to who? The Pharisees. And what are they? They are the greatest step builders in all of history. The greatest ones who thought they could earn their way to salvation. We as as humanity, we make gold pillars. We make silver railings. We got gargoyles, for goodness sakes. We've got Santa Claus on a rope flying overhead. We've got all kinds of nonsense in our church. We do. That's what we got. I've seen it. we got anything and everything. I have people tell me all the time, you cannot get people to listen to what you do. No, yeah, I don't disagree. I can look around. i got Santa Claus on a rope. i got 500 people. I wish it wasn't funny. I got you think any anything you can think of. If I add to it, I get a crowd. If I sit here and tell you that you stink, that you're hopeless, you're wretched, you're blind, you're dead, your only hope is God to come to you and reach out to you, to cover you in his blood. That's your only hope. That's not very popular. The truth of salvation by faith, by belief in the name and the blood of Christ, the sacrificial substituted blood of Christ, the standing in grace, the rejoicing in God's goodness, Romans 5.1, that's buried by Santa Claus on a rope. Mankind's filth and profanity. Will I get cards and letters from saying Santa Claus on a rope? Oh, yeah. It'll be cool. Why do we need an altar? There was no altar in Eden. No altar there. Why? Man was at peace. He hadn't gone to war with God yet. He was not an enemy of God. He was at peace with God. No altar needed. No fear of God. 
You notice that when you're an enemy of God, what happens to you? You are afraid when he approaches because you know you're an enemy. Israel sees him approach and they're in great fear and terror and they run. There's no fear of God coming to man unless you're an enemy of God. It was man's sin that made the altar necessary and God's grace which provided the altar. You've got to remember that. That's the key question. Yes, we have an altar. It is a picture of Christ. It is plain and it is simple. It is plain and it is simple. It is uh, humanity and God mixed yeah, right here, and it is blood. That's all it is. Hypostatic union, sacrificial blood. How simple can that be? That's his way. You can't add to it. You certainly can't add yourself to it. You have to take what is there. But why did he do it? Because first he comes with the law of God. How did that work out? People ran in fear because they're enemies of God. He's, does he know they're going to run in fear? He's omniscient God. He's going to know they're going to run in fear. Okay? So, once they run in fear, if you want to go in a human perspective, he then provides his law of the altar. Key question, why? See, the question is not, why is there evil? The question is, why is there any, anyone saved? Why is there good? Why does he provide the law of the altar in order to save people? Why? Yes, sir. Well, you can make the case the pillar of fire was there. I think he's asking about the thick cloud over Mount Sinai. And he, uh, that's where your Ezekiel 1 comes in. But why, why are any saved? Not why do, why do men perish. Why is anybody saved? Why, why are you saved? What made him do it? He's good. Goodness. Love, mercy, it's who he is. He's being true to himself. He gives the law and then immediately, there are two great truths. It's critically important to see the order of Exodus 20. Two great truths. God giving the law and then God furnishing the instructions for the altar. Israel responds to the law in fear because they're enemies. They're in sin. They have no peace. He's giving them. He comes to them and proves, listen, you are in Rebellion to me, you are enemies to me, and you run in fear because you have to. You know you have to. You're gone. But I'm going to give you a treaty. I'm going to give you instructions for the altar. Here's how I want you to do it. These are the instructions. And by the way, here's the things I don't. I want specifically not for you to do. Don't make any steps to it. Don't put any tools to the rocks. Don't give me any gold or silver. What do they do? They do the opposite of earth, stone, and blood. Every single time, they're still doing the opposite of earth, stone, and blood. It's like 99% of the churches. So he gives the instructions for the altar. Israel responds in fear, runs away. Moses must intercede. That's a tremendous type of Christ. Deuteronomy 18.15. And then something is very clear. Keeping the law of God. He gives the law of God. And keeping the law of God is something really, really cool. Something cool. What is cool about keeping the law of God? It's impossible. It's one of the great impossibles in all of the Bible. 
Hebrews 6.4. There are impossible things, and you need to know what the impossible things are. This is one of the impossible. It's impossible for you to keep the law of God. So what's he got to do? Does he know it's impossible for you to keep the law of God? Yes, that's why he gave it to you. Because he wanted you to know something. You can't build steps. He doesn't want your gold and your silver. And I lost the other one there. Help me. Tools. Keep your tools in your van. I don't want your tools. I don't want your silver. Don't build any steps. Okay? It gives you that right after the law of God, which is impossible for you to keep. It's very important. Don't you know that it's impossible for you to keep the law? People come to me all the time and say, I keep the law. No, you don't. Liar face. If it's impossible to keep the law, and it is, why did God announce it? Because he has to. He's following his order. His first order is law of God. His second order is law of the altar. Third order is what? Law of the Hebrew slave. That's the order. He's going in order. It's perfect order. The altar is the only means of salvation, not the law. He didn't give the law so that you could think, oh, I'm going to save myself. Because it's impossible for you to save yourself. You can't keep the law. It's impossible to keep the law. What are, what's the matter with us? The altar is the only means of salvation, not the law. The law, the Ten Commandments, were never given to man as a means of salvation. Why? Because it's impossible. Can't help. The law is a statute. Does that make sense? It's our obligation. The altar is the provision to the statute. Why do I need a provision to the statute? It's his method, if you will, to provide for our immediate fa- failure. As soon as we saw the law, what happened? We failed. We have instantaneous failure here. Instantaneous. The minute he gives you the law. While he is giving the law to Israel, what is happening to Israel? They are breaking the law. As soon as he gives you the law, you break the law. Instantaneous failure. So he has to have a provision. He knows you're going to break the law instantaneously. Does that make sense? I hope it does. It is impossible for man to keep the statue. And if anyone says otherwise, that is a despicable, profane lie. He or she is lying. And stop it. I, I get weary of it. It's profanity. Keep your profanity and your ego to yourself. I don't want to hear about you lying to me about how good you are. I know. I've read the book. I know what I am. It's time to learn what you are. It's how it works. It's important. Now, by the way, we should try to keep the law. But we should know that it is impossible. It's impossible as a means of salvation. Therefore, We need to accept the provision. That's the law of the altar. It's our only hope. And that's why he gave it. That's why he has to give it. He gives himself. He knows as soon as I give the law, you're going to break it as it comes out 
of Moses' mouth, you're breaking it. Instantaneous failure. So after instantaneous failure comes a provision for you to be saved. Why does he save you? Is it because you earned it? No. It's impossible for you to earn it. Is it because you deserve it? No. It's impossible for you to deserve it. Is it because you have any goodness in you at all? No. You're an instantaneous failure. He does it. Why? Because it's good. Why is it good? What makes it good? Why is saving us good? Can you make the case destroying us is good? Get rid of those people. But he says, no, it's good to save you. Why? But why is it good that we who are made in his image get to be saved? Huh? It is his nature. What it does is it glorifies who he is. It is not about us. It's never about us. That, by the way, is a fundamental of dispensationalism. Our salvation is not for, our salvation is first for his glory, second for our salvation. We are tertiary. We're not even that. We're not secondary. We're not tertiary. We're at the bottom of the list, if there is a list. His glory, our benefit. That's how it works. Now, what's the magic word? Monitor. That's right. Thought I would forget, didn't you? You would have been right. Let's rise and be dismissed. <laughs>